0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome back to the Adventist History Podcast. This episode is entitled Prophecy and Plagiarism, Part 3. Last time we talked about Ron Numbers and his book, Prophetess of Health. Numbers was part of this movement we've been talking about lately that began in the late 1960s and wanted to use the tools of academic scholarship to study Ellen White. Now, Numbers, of course, concluded in his book that Ellen White's health counsel wasn't original to her. In fact, it was borrowed from other health reformers in her day. The implication, although he didn't state it explicitly, was that she had lied about receiving this information in vision. Now, the White estate, of course, responded to this, and this began a little back and forth. Numbers would go on to have a very successful career, but he never did completely leave Adventism behind, which is something we also talked about. Now, moving on, I want to direct your attention to the cover of the March 20th, 1980 issue of the Adventist Review. I know you just have a bunch of reviews sitting around you at all times, so just pick that one up. In case you don't recognize it, It features a smiling couple on the cover around a basket of fruit, which is on the front of a bicycle. The editorial inside was dedicated to Don Neufeld, who was an intrepid church scholar who had been instrumental as part of the process to create the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary Project of the 1950s. And he had, in this issue, just recently passed away, age 65. Now, it was Fairly routine fare in this uh, issue until you turn to page 8. and there, you would find an article by the General Conference President, Neil C. Wilson. And finding an article by the General Conference President, again, also routine fare, but check out what he wrote. Quote, In spite of what some would have you believe, there is no internal upheaval or major crisis in the Seventh-day Adventist Church was no reason to become alarmed, unnerved, or panicky." End quote. It's like Wilson used every synonym for crisis that he could find. I mean, if you, didn't, if you were an Adventist back then and had no idea what was going on, you'd be like, well, I wasn't panicking until now. Today, a good PR person might tell the president not to use language like internal upheaval major crisis, or words like alarmed, unnerved, or panicky, if your goal is to calm people down. Then again, Jesus and the angels seem to have a lot of fun appearing in front of people and saying, do not be afraid, which you can imagine seemed to have had the opposite effect on people than was intended. Clearly, this was no ordinary issue of the review If a reader had been peacefully unaware thus far, they were certainly paying attention now. On Thursday, October 23rd, seven months after Wilson's article, Helen Ray read the LA Times during breakfast. She put down the newspaper, looked at her husband, and said, now you will be fired. He was perplexed. What for? After all, he passed her to 358-member church in Long Beach. He was also nearing retirement age. Yet a few weeks later, he would lose his ministerial credentials. Two months after that, he would be fired. The president of the North American division, Charles Bradford, declared that the pastor's actions, quote, rendered him incapable of serving as an Adventist minister, end quote. His name was Walter Ray. Now, when I joined the Adventist Church, it didn't take long before I heard the name Walter Ray. But all I knew was that he was a former Adventist, this is what I was told, who wrote against Ellen White, one of those critics in the line that began with Dudley M. Canright. I mean, there were critics before, but the real criticism, like the arch critic, was Canright. Now, Ray's book, The White Lie, was just one of a handful of books from this era with depressingly unimaginative puns for titles, like Sidney Cleveland's Whitewashed and Dirk Anderson's Whiteout. Before Ray's The White Lie came out, one John J. Robertson had gone on a speaking tour in Southern California where Ray lived to counteract Ray's influence, and his presentations were eventually published in a book titled The White Truth. Okay, I get it. There's a lot of puns off of the word white because of Ellen White. I get it. It's funny. Ha 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 ha. ha. How many of these books are we going to do? All right. What I didn't realize about Walter Ray then, and what I want you guys to realize, is how Ray was a part of this movement to re examine Ellen White's writings in order to better understand where she got her ideas, how she wrote her books, and, and other questions like that. Now, we have seen in these uh well two and now this prophecy and plagiarism episode how these various thinkers approach this tricky task some like don mcadams allowed the church to prevent his publishing of his book for decades others like william peterson and ron numbers decided it was better to leave denominational employment than to find out what would happen to them ray well he chose the middle ground he would eventually have no problem calling Ellen White a fraud. And he was willing to stick around and see how it turned out. Now it is worth repeating a disclaimer I've given a number of times lately, since, well, there are many people around who still feel very strongly about Walter Ray and Desmond Ford and these other events that we've been talking about lately or will talk about in the near future. And so this disclaimer is this, I'm not trying to steer you one way or the other. When I talk about these topics, I just want to tell the story of what happened in a way that helps you see different sides so that you can make your own informed decision about what to believe about these things. Okay. Now the context of what is going on in the early 1980s matters because while this project to restudy Ellen White, which was inaugurated by Roy Branson, William Peterson, Don McAdams, Ron Numbers, others, hadn't produced much by way of a detailed study of Ellen White. It had begun to fundamentally change how the church was talking about Ellen White. By the end of the 1970s, there was more openness, though not enough openness for some, in talking about her use of sources. We're going to talk about that a little bit today in this episode. But the implications of her borrowing hadn't yet been fully explored. And and part of the reason for that is because We didn't know the extent of her borrowing. And if I may add, we still don't know. Now, that may seem strange to some people who are listening. You think, well, okay, well, this has been going on for, you know, 50 or getting on 60 years. Now, how do we not know the extent of Ellen White's borrowing? And the answer to that is really simple. It's a lot of work, (laughs) okay? (laughs) You're talking about finding the books that she had in her library that she likely consulted which we've done and then you're talking about going word for word through those books and her books to see if there's any connection that is a lot of work my friends and this is why when we talk about these studies that have been done either mcadams's study peterson's or even when we get into the 80s here and we're going to talk about the veltman study they often just studied portions of it, and they kind of just, uh, you know, use statistics to figure out, well, okay, if this is the result in these chapters or these passages, then likely this is the result of the whole. Like this is, you know, we, we can't go through all hundreds of thousands of her pages in order to, to do this kind of study, okay? And I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that in this age of machine learning and artificial intelligence that maybe there will be a program that we can use to expedite this process you know have it run a search of her writings with these various books you know index them all and hopefully then we can uh, we can get a more accurate picture here of what's going on so we have two issues here it's, it's really how much did ellen white borrow from other authors and then the second question is like unto the first What does it mean that she borrowed this, that, or the other from these non avanist authors? And we've seen the different ways in which people react to this. Numbers, uh, he didn't explicitly call Ellen White a fraud or a false prophet, but that was the implication. Others uh, had no problem accepting Ellen White as a prophet, even if she did borrow from others. Their view of inspiration could account for this. Why does everything the White right need to be original in order for her to be a prophet? And, you know, they made arguments along those lines. So you had some people... You know, I, I want you to understand, the people who are asking these questions and doing these research. this research, I think sometimes uh, died in the wool Adventists can hear this and be like, why are they stirring up trouble? Why do they got to ask questions? And I just... If that's your reaction to all of this, I just want to put a check on that because... Uh, Ellen White herself said the truth loses nothing by investigation. For many, understanding what her sources were and how she came to construct her books was an important part of understanding her. This was, the goal was not to dismantle Ellen White. The goal was just to better understand her. And these tools were a way of better understanding her. And let me just give you a quick example of this um, before we move on. So if you find out that Ellen White, in a passage in Desire of Ages, she's quoting this other person, this other writer, and then she stops and she writes a couple of sentences that aren't dependent on this other writer, and then she continues on uh, following this other writer. Well, if you know that, then those two sentences in the middle where where she stopped quoting this other writer, then you can ask some really interesting questions like, was she shown something? for those two sentences? Is there a reason why she stopped following this other writer and added her own original insights in there? Right? So then you start having really interesting conversations about her writings. But anyways, we're, uh, we got to stick to the history here. I just wanted to help you understand a little bit better. These people are not enemies of the church. Some of them, uh, for some of them, this research helped enrich their appreciation for Ellen White, their understanding of Ellen White. For others, it, it led to or and, and contributed to a loss of faith, and and they left, okay? So you have both kinds of reaction among those who are doing this research. So Walter Ray was a part of this kind of research, and boy, <laughs> when his white lie came out, uh, some people, a lot of people, both inside the church and uh, who were familiar with the situation and those on the outside of the situation thought this is going to lead to a big shaking of the church. A church split seems like a very, very real possibility. The context of this crisis has been building a long time now. And so I wanted to take a few minutes to emphasize that this context has a crisis because all crises have a context. This isn't just an example of a disgruntled pastor writes a book that bashes Ellen White. This is part of a longer context of studying Ellen White, and this is the direction that that, that he went. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, at the end of this episode. But for right now, let's back up, head back to 1965, when before, by the way, before Numbers and McAdams and Peterson and Branson and, and Graybill, we've been talking about the last few episodes. And in 1965, Ray wrote about the issue of Ellen White's reliance on other authors. This was not a secret, even though it wasn't widely known. Now, in that article in 1965, Ray shrugged at the idea that Ellen White copied from other authors. Inspiration is about the thoughts, not the words, he argued. He wrote that it was a waste of one's life to worry about where Ellen White got her information because what mattered more was the content of her writings. This is this is what Ray said toward the end of his article. Quote, "I have established myself in the writings of Mrs. Ellen G. White, regardless of the human problems involved." End quote. What's interesting about this article 1965 is these are precisely the things that will be said to Walter Ray in, in about 15-16 years, okay? But this is where he was then. He then adds rather cryptically Quote, your evaluation of these same facts may differ from mine, diminishing or amplifying as you see fit. Thus, it will always be, as perhaps it should be, end quote. Walter Ray built his reputation not as an attacker of Ellen White's credibility, but a defender. But, crucially, as early as 1965, he accepted that others could read the same data Another way. Little did he know that he would be one of those people who would come to see the same data a different way. Now, a word about Walter Ray. What was he like? I never met him, obviously, but he was one of those people like Claude Holmes who turned themselves into experts on Ellen White. We've talked about this from time to time. We've met, we've encountered people in this podcast who are kind of amateur Ellen White scholars and I don't say amateur in a way that disparages them in any way shape or form but we have to keep in mind that it was not super easy to get access to Ellen White's writings Uh, obviously some of her best-known books were never out of print they were always available but there's no internet there's no Ellen White CD-ROM an index was eventually published In the early 1960s, an index to her writings. But even then, I mean, so many people who were devoted and interested in Ellen White cut their teeth on creating their own compilations. Because if you're waiting for the White estate to publish everything she ever wrote, well, you would have to wait until the 20 teens, my friends. That's right. It took 100 years after her death before her writings were released in full, and that's not, a, uh, I guess, a conspiracy or anything like that, it's just the facts. That's There's really no way to do it. What were you gonna do, print every word she ever wrote in books? You know, it's too much, it's too much. It was far easier once the internet came around to be like, okay, we can just release it on the website, and, you know, words are just characters, tiny bits of, of data, it's, it's nothing, it costs us nothing to put it all online, right? So it it just the technology and the economics of it weren't there until the Internet age. So Ray uh, told an audience at one point about his childhood, and he said, quote, I have been a devotee of Ellen G. White almost from the time I had heard of her and her writings. In fact, I remember very well learning to type from her book, Messages to Young People. Later in high school and at college, I went from room to room in the dormitory, gathering from the files of others, all the quotations that I could find to use in my studies and preparations for the ministry." End quote. And that's what you had to do. That's what you had to do to build your Ellen White uh, compilations. You just had to go around everywhere. There's speakers at camp meeting, can you share that quote with me? You go to your friends, you buy a, whatever the latest book is at the ABC, and you kind of create your own index Here's Ellen White's quotes on this. Here's Ellen White's quotes on that. And then you can, it can give you a, a kind of, oh, this is not a great way of putting it, but it, it can give you a degree of influence in your sphere in life because you can be known as the that Ellen White expert that people can go to. No one's going to call Arthur White up on the phone. You know what I mean? But but if if you're in that local church, you're in that conference. Man, even your conference president might call you and say, hey, I need a good Ellen White quote for this or that. And it, it feels good to be that person. I imagine it does. Now, you can still find Walter Ray's two-volume compilation on Ellen White's writings. Uh, he, he, he published them. He released them. He did one on the Old Testament figures and one on New Testament figures. So basically, if you want to learn what Ellen White said about David, he tried to gather all the David quotes that she made and put them under David, right? Same thing with Peter, same thing with others. And undoubtedly, that was a very, very, very helpful thing to do, even if, as he would later say, the white estate was not super happy about it. And by the way, just a fun little anecdote, not to interject myself into the story here, but I I once inquired about making my own compilation and publishing it, because self-publishing now, it's, it's pretty easy to do. And, uh, well, let's just say the white estate was very kind about it. And obviously they can't stop me if the writings are in the public domain, but they strongly encouraged me not to do it. <laughs> so, you know, I can imagine if they were gentle today, maybe it, was a, it felt a little bit less gentle back then. I don't know. But anyway, so he did these two volumes, these two compilations, and what Ellen White wrote about these various Old Testament, New Testament figures, undoubtedly that was probably seen as very helpful to pastors and lay preachers, Uh, who were looking for good you know Ellen White content and didn't have this vast collection of her writings. A third volume was later added to this set, which was Ellen White's comments on Daniel and Revelation. And while pastoring in Orlando, Ray began working on a fourth volume, which was Ellen White's comments on Bible doctrines. Now, Ray was pastoring the Crest Memorial Church in the Crest family, a very well-known Adventist family, gave him Ellen White's book, Sketches from the Life of Paul. Now, undoubtedly proud to get his hands on this out-of-print book, Ray showed it to a friend who told him that, yeah, that book is eerily similar to another book in Ellen White's day, one that she had not written. Now, Ray decided to look into it. Later, he found himself back in California, where another Adventist family with deep roots gave Ray a book called Elisha the Prophet by one Alfred Edersheim. Now, Ray recognized Ellen White's signature on the book, which is, I mean, an incredible find. But likewise, when Ray was working on his Ph.D. at the University of California, he found more similarities between Ellen White and Edersheim there. Okay, all of this added up, and he began looking into these connections between Ellen White and these uh, other writers of her day. And again, he didn't begin this to cause trouble. He wasn't looking for problems. He was somebody who loved Ellen White and wanted to better understand her writings. And this was a really interesting kind of virgin territory to to be exploring here. Ray sent some of his research to Arthur White and a colleague at the White Estate, Robert Olson, replied and told Ray not to publish anything until Olson had a chance to come see him. Well, Bob Olson, you see, he was due to speak at the Southern California camp meeting in 1978, which met near a place called Palmdale, the scene of some recent excitement, which we will talk about in a few episodes. Now, this relationship with Robert Olson continued, and Ray would send him periodic updates of his research. Now, on this side of the white lie being published, we definitely see a much more aggressive, even belligerent Walter Ray. But Bob Olson was appreciative of Ray's work. In one case in 1978, Olson wrote, quote, thanks so much, Walt, I really appreciate your sharing the results of your long labors with us, end quote. In another letter, Olson wrote, thanks a million. And in that letter, Olson said he was also sending some of Ray's work to a professor at Southern to look over as well. And as you might expect, Ron Graybill got on board with this project as well, offering critiques and support as he had once done with Ron Numbers. Ray told Ron, quote, I am most pleased that you and Bob Olson are handling this subject. I am sure we can make a significant contribution to the church concerning Ellen White and her writings, end quote. Nevertheless, Ray knew that neither side was fully aware of each other's intentions in full. It was being prosecuted in the name of further research into Ellen White, which is great. But what was to be done with the research? Graybill felt that Ray was being too cagey about his own conclusions. Ray wanted the White Estate to help more, since they had the best access to Ellen White's writings, but they seemed content, in Ray's view, to operate at turtle speed. In a letter to a friend, Ray griped, quote, The brethren have never shared my intensity of concern for action, therefore I can no longer guarantee my patience will last as long as theirs, end quote. And while the White Estate got Ray to agree not to publish before they could get a look at it, Olson nevertheless told Ray that, I'm not putting you on a leash. Quote, I want to reiterate in this letter, Walt, what I said personally while we were together last Sunday, and that is, the White Estate has no desire whatsoever to control your activities or your movements or your public meeting in even the slightest possible way. If you feel you should discuss this question openly at Andrews University or at Loma Linda University, All I can say is, God bless you. You surely have a right to be heard, end quote. Olson backed this up, too. When the Adventist Forum chapter at Andrews wanted to invite Ray to come speak, they asked Olson if he wanted to be present as a kind of safety measure and also a gesture of respect, right? If you're going to invite a controversial speaker, it's it's a kind gesture to invite uh, some church official to be present, uh, just as a show of good faith. But Olson told them, There's no need for me to be there. It'll be fine. Ray kept his conference president informed, too, and that president used his own connections with Neil Wilson and Charles Bradford to impress upon them the need to study this issue. Meanwhile, Arthur White began preparing the Adventist public for what was coming. In 1978, he wrote a series of articles for the Adventist Review on an Adventist concept of inspiration, railing against the rigid and distorted sense of inspiration which many had. The next year, Arthur White embarked on a new series of articles on how Ellen White wrote some of her best-known books, and when it came to The Desire of Ages, which Ray was then working on, White wrote a a pretty thorough account of how that book was written, giving due credit to Ellen White's literary assistance while debunking the rumors that they were secretly the authors. Ray had already discovered that some of the titles Ellen White used for the chapters had been taken from other books, and on this note, Arthur White wrote, quote, the Bible narrative naturally suggests some chapters, but there is some paralleling with chapter titles used by others in writing on Christ's life. End quote. White then went a little further, disclosing that Ellen White, quote, was not ignorant of the help certain narratives on the life of Christ could be to her in the descriptive part of her writing, end quote. And that, <laughs> that was a very delicate way to put it. Notice that he implies that these other books helped Ellen White in the descriptive part of her writing. The next week, Arthur White picked up the subject again as he tackled the question, was Ella White dependent upon other authors? And, you know, kudos to him because that is the question, right? Was she dependent on those other authors? And dependent for what? Well, White obviously can't address the whole enchilada, but he again admitted that Ella White consulted, as he put it, the writings of her day. But, quote, It is obvious that these materials did not constitute the basic source of her information on Christ's life and teaching or the deeper insights or of many of the deeply spiritual lessons she drew from the teachings of Christ, end quote. White said that these books were useful in helping Ellen White express what had passed before her in vision. What's curious about these very carefully worded statements is that nobody knew how much Ellen White relied upon other authors. Was it really so obvious that, as Arthur White put it, these materials did not constitute the basic source of her information on Christ's life? How could you know? Months after Arthur White wrote these articles, Neil Wilson would organize a committee to study this question with Walter Ray. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. And Neil, in this letter, doubted that Ellen White had borrowed as much as Ray was claiming, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, But he also admitted, quote, we do not really know, and I believe we should know. I would like to clearly face people, critics or friends, and say we have looked at the evidence, end quote. So what Neil Wilson is saying there, months after these articles by Arthur White, is we actually don't know how much she borrowed from other authors, and I believe we should know. As church leaders. Why? So I can look people in the eye, whether they are critics or whether they are friends, and say, We have done our job as church leaders. We have studied this. We have looked into this, and here are the conclusions. So it seems Arthur White is much more certain about this than Neil Wilson was. In fact, Ray is later going to be criticized for only showing the similarities between what Ellen White wrote and what other authors wrote, that he didn't dwell enough on the differences, where she changed things, or where she uh, didn't choose not to follow them. It's something we talked about earlier here. Arthur White, on the other hand, spent a number of column inches comparing his grandmother's writings to those she borrowed from, but always highlighting the differences. That is where Ellen White, though borrowing from these other authors, nevertheless differs from them, and this, this shows Ellen White's literary independence from them, even though she is otherwise relying upon their writings. These are perhaps the easiest examples of borrowing to understand. Arthur White doesn't show what Walter Ray, Don McAdams, and others had discovered, that sometimes she borrows whole passages, or ideas, or even moral conclusions from these other authors, and even, at times, the original author's mistakes. Ron Graybill nevertheless appreciated Arthur White's articles, calling them quote, a very useful first step in educating the church in these matters, end quote. Don McAdams agreed, saying, quote, clearly the readers of the review were being prepared for the evidence that Ellen White borrowed extensively from secular sources, end quote. Now, Ray wasn't the only one working on Ellen White and her sources, of course. There may have been a dozen people uh, who were also working on this, but among them, Walter Specht and Ray Cottrell, had finished their own study of Ellen White's reliance upon William Hanna's Life of Christ. So they were comparing the Desire of Ages with one particular source. Now, Cottrell was given the first 45 chapters of of Desire of Ages, and Specht was given the remaining ones to study, and so they ended up producing two two reports. Cottrell's report arrived at the end of 1979, and and Specht arrived in 1980. Cottrell discovered a quote, roughly 2.6% literary indebtedness to Hannah, end quote. Granted, this 2.6% number is based on a very small sample size of about 11 paragraphs out of the 45 chapters which Cottrell studied. Cottrell compared Ellen White's Desire of Ages to the Gospel of John as a metaphor in the sense that John uses some of the same stories which the synoptic Gospels use, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but then John kind of adds his own layer of meaning to those stories. And so Cottrell was saying, in the same way Ellen White borrows from these other authors, but she she makes it her own. She adds her own layer of meaning to it that renders the finished product to be something unique and special on its own. Now, of course, Specht and Cottrell were comparing one of Ellen White's books to one other book while Ray was looking... Uh, for all the sources that she relied upon. Yet, Specht and Cottrell's work of more limited borrowing established a skepticism among church leaders of Ray's claims to Ellen White's high degree of literary dependence. And I've, I've seen a number of claims that Walter Ray made. One of them, I'll just say, is that she borrowed 80% of what she wrote. And here, Cottrell and company are coming in at 2.6%, at least just on this one source. Now, it is interesting to note that whatever Ellen White's degree of literary dependence upon these other sources, it bothered some people and didn't bother others. How one receives this information depends upon how one understands inspiration. I'll say it again because it's preacher time. How one receives this information depends upon how one understands inspiration. All right. Shout out to Judd Lake. Did I pass preaching class? Woo! That's my bullet, baby. Anyway, sorry. composing myself again. Bob Olson would later advocate for a study of the literary dependence of various biblical authors. This to him was important. And let me give you an example of that real quick. He wanted to see a study of how these New Testament authors or Old Testament authors borrowed from other places in the Bible. For instance, how Revelation borrows from various apocryphal or even Old Testament texts. You know, you probably heard that a lot of Revelation is just a callback to something that happened in the Old Testament or in the Apocrypha, often without attribution. Now, unlike the Gospels where it's like, you have, it has been written, da-da-da-da-da. That doesn't really happen in Revelation as much. The, the references are, they, they just, it, it's either a paraphrase or even it's sometimes a direct quote, and often without attribution. So is it any different from how Ellen White did those things? Did it matter if Ellen White borrowed from other authors if John did it too? You know, again, it was hard to answer these questions without more thorough studies in how much and what Ellen White actually borrowed. But I want you to feel that tension because y- you want to push to study these things. But it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time to do an in-depth study on her sources. But, but as you're doing that, you're kind of like, okay, well, what is the conclusion here? What is this leading towards? And so you kind of want to jump to the conclusion because let's get to the interesting stuff already, right? I'm doing all this research, but what does it mean? Where is it going? And you see other people doing this research and you, you realize how needed it is and how church leaders wanna see this research happen and, and, and come to a conclusion and they're concerned about the well-being of the church when this information gets out. And so maybe you feel some pressure to, to answer the question that's on everybody's mind. What does it all mean? Tensions between the church and Ray began forming throughout 1979. The white estate and the general conference felt that Ray was exaggerating the significance of his findings. You know, that claim about 80%. I'm not sure exactly when he arrived at that number, but that that would be an example of, of a claim that they felt was really exaggerated. And Ray felt that the church leaders were understating the truth. And as you can imagine, when you feel somebody is exaggerating, you have a tendency to want to downplay it. And when you see somebody downplaying uh, something important, you have a tendency to exaggerate it. So this is not going to work out well. There was also a seminary student named Bruce Weaver, who found a list of books in Ellen White's library in the autumn of 1978. He began hunting down copies of those books and comparing them with what she had written. Okay, that's a necessary step. But eventually, Weaver found White Estate memos where Ray was mentioned. These are internal memos. And he sent these, he made copies of them and sent them to Ray. Now, when this was discovered, of course, he was kicked out of the seminary, lost his conference sponsorship, all of that stuff. And ironically, ironically, Weaver would later grow frustrated with Walter Ray because Ray apparently used some of the information that Weaver had provided about Ellen White and her sources and yet never once cited him. He is mentioned in the beginning of White Lie, but his specific contributions are are never publicly acknowledged, to my knowledge. And as Ray recounts it, in January of 1979, Bob Olson spoke at Loma Linda, and in response to a question about Ellen White and her sources, because again, people who were in the know wanted to know. And in response to this question, Olson apparently, according to Ray, responded that there was a pastor in Southern California making waves about Ella White's borrowing, but that people shouldn't pay any attention to it. Now, again, keep in mind, this is from Ray's perspective here. And I don't have a copy of that cassette. If you have a copy of that cassette, let me have it. I'll digitize it and send it back to you. But this is how Ray interpreted it. On September 15, 1979, Ray presented some of his findings at a workers' meeting in Southern California. And for those outside of pastoral circles or administrative circles, workers' meeting is usually this uh, meeting that happens every year where all the pastors gather together. And they meet with their conference leaders. There are reports and discussions and all these sorts of things. Ray also made a presentation at his Long Beach church. And meanwhile, church speakers, that is denominational leaders like Bob Olson, were hitting the camp meeting circuit that year, and they were intimating that these concerns about Ellen White's literary borrowing were no big deal. And when Bob Olson gave one such talk in Southern California, Ray felt personally attacked. Now, privately, you know, in Ray's understanding, the White Estate is excited about receiving my research, but publicly they're downplaying it. Although, of course, they didn't mention Walter Ray by name. Ray began broadening his research, trying to find more secular sources for anything and everything Ellen White wrote. His conclusions also began to grow in scope, but also impossible to nail down, because as we we noted, Graybill chastised him for uh, not putting his conclusions in writing. And if he had, if he had, this story might have ended a lot sooner than it did. You know, perhaps, perhaps. I don't know what his conclusions were in the fall of 1979, Versus the spring of 1980, but he was surprisingly slippery about putting those conclusions in writing. He had no problem making public statements, however, and those were beginning to add up. It was clear that it was time to sit down and talk. So, on January 8th, 1980, Neil Wilson formed a committee of 19 to examine the evidence Walter Ray had collected. Walter himself had asked for the meeting, apparently. And some of the names you might recognize on this committee. There was Bill Johnson, soon to be editor of the Review. There's Bob Olson, of course, Herb Douglas, Don McAdams, and hey, Larry Richards, one of my bosses when I was at seminary. And of course, I didn't know about his involvement in this, so I never asked him, and I will regret that. Wilson explained to the committee that the basic claim that Ellen White borrowed is not a new claim, but the amount which Ellen White borrowed as claimed by Ray was staggering. And again you know, he was putting this figure around 80%. Wilson was straight about this. He told Ray, the burden of proof was on you to prove that 80%, 70%, 90%, whatever of her writings were borrowed from others. And he also told the committee that we owe it to the church members to, quote unquote, get the facts out on the table. They were to meet in a few weeks' time in a third floor conference room at Glendale Avenue Hospital. On January 28th at 9 a.m. the meeting began. And when I say meeting, I mean, you know, obviously it was mostly Walter Ray presenting. Over the course of a day and a half, Ray spoke for about nine hours and then spent another hour and a half answering questions. In the afternoon of January 29th, the second day, the committee voted their response to Ray in the form of several resolutions. And before I read those for you, let me just make a point about the timeline here, okay? They basically had a day and a half out of 2 days to listen to Walter Ray present his research. Now, Bob Olson undoubtedly would have been familiar with much of this, but maybe most of the people on the committee weren't. And then they had an hour and a half to answer questions or to ask questions of Walter Ray. That's not a lot of time, okay? This is not a thorough study. And mind you, I think about every time we've talked about somebody meeting with a committee to study some complex theological issue or, or what have you, there's never enough time to actually study it. There's never enough time to actually study it. So, you know, if this was mailed out months in advance and then people could read it themselves and then spend the two days asking questions and discussing it, you know, it, it might have been a little bit more fruitful, but what are you going to do? You know, people don't have all day to discuss and think and all of these sort of things. We don't live in a philosopher's republic, do we? Okay, so the resolutions that the committee voted upon. First, I'm going to quote this one, quote, that we recognize that Ellen White in her writing used various sources much more extensively than we had previously believed. In a number of her books, the similarity between Ellen White and other authors is great enough to require the serious attention of church leaders, end quote. Second, second resolution, that a plan be made to figure out how to brief the church's administrators about Ellen White's use of sources. Third, that a plan be made to brief the Adventist public about how to understand this issue. Fourth, that an in-depth study of Ellen White's Desire of Ages be conducted, which was building on Walter Ray's work. Fifth, that someone trained in scholarly methodology be asked to work with Walter Ray and continue the study. Sixth, finally, that this committee should continue to serve to continue evaluating the results of the research. Now, the reason why I mentioned that this committee did not have a ton of time to actually evaluate this, I mean, he basically had to listen to Walter Ray, ask some questions, and then vote on something. He didn't really have a lot of time to go look it up yourself. Uh, to He had marked up the Desire of Ages, kind of color-coded it, and to, to describe how Ellen White was borrowing. And you, you just didn't have enough time. You didn't have any time really to, to look into that more deeply. You just kind of had to take his word for a lot of it. And this is why, this is why the, the committee reacted fairly positively to what Walt, Walter Ray had presented. And it's why upon more thinking about this issue that some plans are going to change. We're going to get to that in just a second. Now, committee members genuinely appreciated Walter Ray's work. Some were vocal about not wanting to see the church cover this up. They wanted to see this get out to the people. They wanted to see, not all at once, but they wanted to see a steady stream of it get out to the people. But as Spectrum reported, quote, most of the committee also stressed the sloppiness of Ray's methodology. As one scholar put it, the evidence is stronger than his presentation, end quote. So even though the committee agreed with Ray that Ellen White borrowed far more than they had expected, and that most Avenists were even aware of, they weren't sure about Ray's conclusions and frankly, frankly, didn't seem to completely trust his ability to arrive at the right conclusion. Fred Veltman, a professor at Pacific Union College and one of the two observers at the January meeting, walked away unimpressed by Walter's research, griping, quote, even his underlining is inaccurate, end quote. <laughs> That's a savage burn from an academic, let me tell you. The general complaint here from Veltman and church leaders is that Walter Ray was too eager to make his work public before he had finished thinking it through. Walter's zeal would cause a lot of problems in the church, and Veltman felt that an ordained minister like Ray should be more mindful of how his research might harm the faith of the faithful. Jack Ravoncha teaching nearby at Loma Linda, reflected Veltman's ambivalent feelings when, in a letter a few weeks after the Glendale meetings, he praised Walter Ray's work, and he said he wished the white estate would just hire Ray to let him finish the project. And yet Provancha lamented how one of his former students had been devastated by Ray's presentation to the Long Beach Church in 1979. On top of that, one of Ray's own members apparently had told Jack, quote, I shall never be able to read The Desire of Ages again, end quote. Provencha agreed with Ray that church leaders had known about this issue for a long time, that they had concealed this material over the years, but he also agreed with Ray's critics that Ray hadn't thought through the issues all the way. Provencha wanted Ray to stop presenting the evidence of borrowing without an explanatory model of how inspiration can account for all of this, He also wanted Ray to better appreciate that even if Ellen White did borrow, her overall perspective is unique, and therefore it doesn't really matter if she did borrow. Quote, unless you are able to add these other two dimensions to your work, I think you owe it to the church to remain silent, except in the presence of individuals who have worked their way through this issue, end quote. That's what Jack told Walter. Now, six of the 19 members of the committee, plus Fred Veltman and Ron Graybill, presented a report to Neil Wilson a couple weeks after the Glendale meeting. The General Conference ultimately agreed that members needed to be educated about these issues, but decided to inform Walter Ray that, quote, his intensive study over the period of years has largely served its purpose, and that now the General Conference will ask other individuals to carry on this work, to the degree deemed necessary by the leadership of the church, end quote. Yeah, you know, that's not going to sit well with Walter Ray. <laughs> Being told that this study that you initiated on your own, that you have spent countless hours pursuing, that when somebody else tells you that your work has served its purpose, you know, this work that you began and initiated and poured yourself into, and somebody else is telling you that you've, you've done enough, yeah, that's, that's going to not sit well, is it? Well, Ray, for his part, had walked away from the Glendale meetings feeling vindicated. He was happy to tell people that, apparently. Neil Wilson was not so happy that he walked away telling people that. Because later that summer, Wilson would write ominously to Ray, quote, there is a serious question in the minds of many, Walter, as to whether your activities over the last couple of years have really been in harmony with these basic concepts and ethics of the ministry, end quote. In other words, don't walk away from the Glendale meeting saying, "Oh, look, church leaders have fully vindicated everything that I'm saying, and, uh, and you know I'm right, and all these sort of things." Uh, Neil Wilson's like, "I don't, I don't see it that way, and I don't think you can construe it that way." Now, of course, all of this was after audio recordings of the Glendale meetings leaked, which Wilson also blamed on Ray, writing, "Quote: I cannot overemphasize my disappointment in the way that you broke what I felt was a gentleman's agreement." The word of a minister, an agreement reached and made by a minister, is in my judgment sacred and binding. End quote. Now these strong statements, months after the Glendale meetings, where Ray's research was formally praised, shows just how fast things fell apart. And while I haven't found this particular source myself, apparently the Southern California Conference president, that's Ray's president, published a statement that Quote, the committee did not discover dependence on other authors in the spirit of prophecy writings, end quote, a few weeks after the Glendale meeting. Ray's friend Jerry Wiley was incensed at what he perceived to be a complete betrayal. Official statements by church leaders began to appear everywhere as well, in the review, in union papers, at different workers' meetings, and of course, Bob Olson even released a 14-page document about Ellen White's use of sources that April. Ray felt it was a pre-planned conspiracy to take over his research and that the Glendale meeting was uh, presumably just for show. Focused on the significance of his own research, Ray seemed to be forgetting that there were perhaps a dozen people working on the same stuff and that the White estate had long ago acknowledged the need to educate the membership. Still, it must have felt jarring for Walter Ray to have had a good meeting where his work was appreciated, only to be told, I mean, just weeks later, that others would complete his research because apparently he wasn't trusted to follow through. It's natural to look for a reason for that sudden turn, and Ray settled on calling it a cover up. And in his eyes, this is what happened. As soon as that committee, which supported him, reported back to headquarters, and his research became known to a wider circle of leaders, they immediately tried to put him and his research on ice. They got spooked, realized we need to control this thing, and tried to sideline him. Ray insisted that he had broken no moral code, he had committed no crime, he had denied no doctrine, he was still an ordained minister in good standing, pastoring a large church, and yet he was hearing rumors that he would be fired. In a rather testy letter, he told Neil Wilson that if he were fired without cause, and of which you know there's no cause, he would consider suing the church. And this naturally riled Wilson, who, as we just noted, had a very, very high value of how a minister should behave. And Wilson assured Ray that he would not be fired, but, but if he continued agitating against the church, sowing doubts, and so on then the only honorable thing for Ray would be to quit. It's kind of like that old honor society thing where it's like, uh, hey, you know, you've dishonored your emperor, your king, then fall on your sword. And so in the middle of this, Wilson wrote his remarkable article in the review to urge members to calm down. There's no crisis. There's nothing to see here. Everything is fine. And here, for the first time in this article, a general conference president is owning up to the fact that Ellen White borrowed from other authors and that it's significant. Now let's zoom out again, because Wilson's concern wasn't just Ray. In the spring of 1980, when Wilson's article came out, a professor on loan from Pacific Union College, one by the name of Desmond Ford, was then on leave to write out his own views on the sanctuary in preparation... meeting with church leaders at a place called Glacier View. And then there was the Davenport scandal. And while that affair wouldn't completely break into the open until the summer of 1981, the next summer, there were some who were already raising the alarm. Now I'm going to deal with Davenport as an episode on the Adventist History Extra podcast for our patrons and supporters. It was a huge scandal, granted, but dedicating an episode to it here on the Adventist History Podcast doesn't really move our story forward very much. So go become a patron or sign up for Adventist History Extra on the website if you want to hear that. In the meantime, if you want to know something right now, i Michael Campbell, Michael Yonker wrote an article on the Davenport Affair in the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists. It's available for free online. So if you want to go inform yourself real quick, well, there you go. What I will say here, and something you're not going to find in the article. Is how Walter Ray was involved in the Davenport affair because Davenport, Donald Davenport, had apparently reached out to Ray's Avenis lawyer friend Jerry Wiley in 1978, and this got Wiley curious. He began looking into Davenport's success, only to find out that it was a Ponzi scheme. He tried warning Neil Wilson, who apparently replied with some skepticism, as uh, usually that's that's the first reply to everything, right? Wiley tried to warn various church leaders over the intervening years to no avail. When Ray took up the Long Beach Congregation in 1976, he was apparently pastoring Don Davenport's home church. And there he learned about Davenport's divorce from his wife several years earlier. And in looking up the divorce papers, and I, before I finished that sentence, <laughs> when I was writing this, I was thinking to myself, is that what pastors did? You know, if you found out members got divorced, did you go look up the divorce papers to make sure that it was all above board, or was Ray told something that that kind of said, "Oh, this is um, this there might be something here worth looking up." I don't know, but anyways, he looked up the divorce papers, and Ray said he discovered how deeply Davenport was in debt and how many church leaders were connected to Davenport in this debt. So when Ray felt some criticism coming from church leaders throughout nineteen eighty over his Ellen White research, he shot back saying, those sitting in judgment of me better not be invested in Donald Davenport. Because unlike those people, Ray insisted that he had never done anything wrong. And in a letter to Wilson, he noted that he was only eight years from retirement, pleading with Wilson to, quote, suggest a plan whereby I can retire with honor and security, end quote. So there you have it. F-D-R, Ford, Davenport, Ray, all happening at the same time. No wonder Wilson felt the need to tell folks that everything was fine. So in May of 1980, Ray wrote a letter to the committee, to the Glendale committee, attached to with another tranche of his research. Summing up the last decade of research into Ellen White sources, Ray dropped a bombshell. Here it is, quote, it is now clearly proven that Mrs. White wrote very little, if anything, in the book Great Controversy. She was not in control of her writings, manuscripts, and materiel at all times and had very little to do with the final makeup. Many of those around her knew this and helped to cover these facts. The vast majority of all we have called the spirit of prophecy came by natural means from the pen, mind, and thoughts of others in her name, end quote. Whew. So it's not just that the church is covering up the Glendale meetings and Walter Ray's research. It has been a cover up with Ellen White since the very beginning that she wrote very little if anything in the book great controversy is an astonishing claim to make astonishing claim to make so smelling this cover-up of his writings of his research and of the glendale meeting ray was doubling down and here i think we can we can see what lay behind some of those early critics of ray And, and by the way i hope you realize as we've seen so far that some of these people who are criticizing Ray and his methodology and stuff are also the people who are appreciating him in another perspective. They appreciate his work. They appreciate what he's trying to do. They just, they just criticize how he comes to conclusions because conclusions like this, which are absolute without nuance. And indeed, indeed, as much research as he's done, it is impossible for him to have made this conclusion with any degree of certainty but that doesn't stop him. Don McAdams, in a letter in the review, got at the heart of things when he wrote, quote, some Seventh-day Adventists may need to revise their concept of inspiration, but we need not, indeed must not, abandon the precious gift God has given the church, end quote. So here's the problem. The church felt Ray was right about Ellen White's borrowing, but that his conclusions were extreme and dangerous. And one of the reasons why they were dangerous was that too many church members held the view of Ellen White's inspiration that couldn't account for borrowing even a single word from other authors. Many still believed in her verbal inspiration, which means every word she authored was inspired by God. The decades of not talking about this issue, of not trying to correct that faulty view of inspiration, were finally coming back to haunt the church. Now, if we're looking to point fingers, was it Ray's fault for presenting the information in a way that would likely do a lot of harm? Sure. I think objectively, we can say that that conclusion that Ellen White may have written nothing in the book Great Controversy is absolutely ludicrous. And at the very least, there's no way he could have known that based on the information that he had at the time. This is an example of someone reaching for a conclusion based on what they think is the trajectory of the evidence. So, is there a fault on Ray's side there? Yes. Was it the church's fault for not having prepared members for this topic far enough in advance, for having let members entertain ideas that many church leaders knew were wrong, but because they were wrong in the right direction? They were, I guess, passable faults? Yes, it's cheaper to tell the truth today, my friends, than to wait and tell it tomorrow. And by letting these misconceptions accumulate for generations, it made it harder. It made it so that when somebody like Ray said the things that he did, more people were going to be unsettled and hurt and shocked by the result. Now, as you can gather, things were breaking down fast between Walter Ray and church leaders. Ray was frustrated that his project was, from his perspective, being hijacked by the church, by a church who wanted to bury his conclusions or at least slow roll them to death, right? Like just feed people a nugget at a time and take their sweet old time. From the church's perspective, Ray was rash and was rushing to judgments far beyond the evidence. In July, Ray's conference president caught wind that Ray might be writing a book. He urged Ray to proceed cautiously, making sure the White Estate and the General Conference are kept in the loop. In September, the conference treasurer wrote Ray, urging him, quote, not to arouse the animosity of your entire church over the issues you have raised in your research. To me, it is simply not that important, end quote. And then, Gosh, rather touchingly, the treasurer basically told Ray, look, if all of this is because you're bored, because your, your gifts aren't being used, let me know, we can find a better job for you. But it was not to be. The next month, that article in the LA Times appeared. The one Walter's wife, Helen, read at breakfast and looked at her husband and said, now you will be fired. We're going to talk about that article and more next time hey it's me again if this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra it's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History project you can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website which is AdventistHistoryProject.org or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com Now there's more variety at Adventist History Extra in case you were wondering. I do some interviews sometimes I do bonus episodes you know I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more just as a second announcement for you. Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October, 2024. So if you wanna go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at avenishistoryproject.org. And we're gonna keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear,